Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you um, so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, which is actually a collaborative effort, a partnership with the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And today's program is titled Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Biomarker Testing and Treatment. And today's program is supported by Regeneron, and I really want to thank them for the support of this program. This is um, part two of Living with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Regeneron has supported both part one and part two. Now, before I introduce our speakers, I just want to kind of let you all know that there's over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bahrain, Canada, Peru, the territory of Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. So we really have a global call, and we're delighted to have all of you on this program today. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joshua Sabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, NYU Langone Health, Perlmutter Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing non-small cell lung cancer overview in the context of COVID, seasonal flu, and RSV. The role of biomarker testing in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. Specific examples of how biomarker testing may inform treatment decisions. Key questions to ask your healthcare team about biomarker testing and its benefits for your treatment choices and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Really appreciate it. And I first off want to thank the Longevity Foundation and the Cancer Connect, uh, the education workshop, as well as the sponsors, and in particular, Dr. Mesner, for, for doing this. We've been doing this for many years. Uh, together. So again, my name is Josh. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist in New York, and my, my research focus is on uh, drug development for specific targeted therapies or mutations. And we'll go into that in a lot of detail, focusing on the role of biomarker testing in the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. So I want to zoom out 30,000 feet. Uh, first off, lung cancer is quite common. Uh, over 2.2 million people uh, globally diagnosed every year. Uh, here in the United States, it's the third most common type of cancer that we see. Uh, so, you know, important to understand that this is not just one disease. Um, you know, lung cancer, there are multiple different histologies, and we'll hear a lot about that from Dr. Cushman Boken uh, in a bit. But when somebody is newly diagnosed with lung cancer, you know, they typically present with some form of symptom, cough, shortness of breath, weight loss, and sometimes no symptoms at all, right? Patients can come in. Uh, have a low-dose CT scan, for example, as a screening uh, test and identified to have a lung cancer on the imaging. So patients present in lots of different ways uh, to their clinicians. So we'll go over an overview of how people present and then really focusing on the biomarker testing uh, and how that sort of differentiated care in 2024 and beyond. So when I meet a patient in the office, the first thing that we want to understand is where did the disease start in the body? And where has the disease gone in the body? And that's called staging. We typically obtain imaging, uh, things like a CT scan or a PET CT, which gives us better visualization or activity of the cancer in the body. It's always very important to also get an MRI of the brain uh, in cases uh, because we want to make sure we understand where the disease is. And imaging will generally help us understand the stage. Uh, we oftentimes, though, need to get a biopsy uh, to define the histology. Uh, so there's multiple ways to identify histology. Uh, can, we can do percutaneous biopsies. We can do bronchoscopic biopsies. Uh, so percutaneous is through the chest using imaging, or, or bronchoscopically is using a bronchoscope into the airway 
And then using ultrasound technology, we can biopsy lymph nodes in the middle of the chest or uh, masses in the lung. And once we do that biopsy, a critical part is we hand over the tissue to our pathology colleagues, and Dr. Cushman Vogan is going to discuss this, where they define the type of cancer under the microscope. So as you may know, there are two major types of lung cancer. There is small cell lung cancer, which is you know, uncommon, about 13 to 15% in the United States. We're not going to focus on that during this call. And then the more common is non-small cell lung cancer, which makes up about 85% of patients diagnosed with lung cancer here in the United States. Now, globally, uh, there are different types of histologies within non-small cell lung cancer, but we'll focus today on adenocarcinoma, or a gland cancer, and we'll briefly talk about squamous cell carcinoma as well. These are two different types of non-small cell lung cancer that occur. Now, anytime I have a patient with a non-small cell lung cancer, it's critical to obtain biomarker testing. Now, a lot of people ask me, is that only necessary in people with stage 4 disease, or should all patients with lung cancer stage 1, stage 2, stage 3 obtain biomarker testing? And in 2024, it really is critical that all patients, no matter what the stage, have biomarker testing performed because it will help guide care. With that being said, let's focus on people who have stage 4 lung cancer. Stage 4 lung cancer means the cancer started in the lung and learned how to travel through the body, particularly generally through the, the vasculature, blood vessels, but we can see spread of cancer through lymphatics or lymph channels. But in someone who has a stage 4 cancer, for example, the cancer starts in the lung, learns how to spread through the blood to, say, the liver, uh, we do the biopsy of the liver lesion, and we identify that this is an adenocarcinoma. It is critical to obtain biomarker testing. Now, there's two major types of biomarker testing that I want you to focus on when you're meeting with your clinical team. And if you have a diagnosis of lung cancer, you know, at your next visit, I want you to make sure that you understand what your biomarkers are in your cancer. So the first biomarker that we generally talk about is something called PDL1, or Program Death Ligand 1. I know it sounds science fiction, but this is a marker on the surface of cancer cells that allows us to better understand the likelihood of immunotherapy working. Zero or zero percent is no expression of that marker. 50% is intermediate, and 100% is very high. So it's a zero to 100. It's a subjective biomarker, right? So it's a pathologist looking at the stain or paint under the microscope to then define a percent score. And then we use that information to help guide whether immunotherapy will be important. A lot of patients say, Doc, I have a PDL1 of 100%. Does that mean that we're going to go ahead with immunotherapy? And there are many different types of immunotherapies approved now. Um, but the answer is, we have to wait till we get full biomarker testing back. So it is insufficient to act upon the PDL1 expression alone. We really need the second piece of the puzzle, the second piece of the information, which is the molecular testing and also referred to as next generation sequencing. Again, there are many different assays, many different companies, many different ways to perform next generation sequencing. But the way that I think about it is next generation sequencing is really understanding the fingerprint of the cancer, right? Understanding which mutations are abnormal or led to the, the rise of this cancer. And why is it important to understand this uh, molecular uh, um, uh, mutational profile? Because we have specific therapies that patients can be matched to and they will, you know, derive significant benefit to. So in a patient who has this PD-L1 expression back, I generally say, let's wait for the molecular testing, the next generation sequencing results, and we'll hear about it. We can do this both in tissue, and we can also do it in the plasma or the peripheral circulation. Some of the benefits of plasma is that it comes back very quickly, five to seven business days. It's non-invasive. Some of the drawbacks is that we cannot define the histology or the architecture of the cancer, meaning we can't tell if it's non-small cell or small cell, or within non-small cell, we can't tell if it's squamous or adenocarcinoma based on the blood biopsy. We really do need to fall back on the tissue biopsy. And the other thing is that the blood assay or the plasma 
um, next generation sequencing, the blood biopsy, can oftentimes be non-diagnostic. And I always talk about this idea that if you go fishing and you don't catch your fish, we don't, you know, sort of uh, um, conclude that there were no fish in the ocean. You conclude really that you just didn't get a fish that day. And the same with the blood-based biomarker testing. If it's positive, we can act upon it. But if it's negative or non-diagnostic, we really need to fall back on the tissue next-generation sequencing. So there are multiple different genomic alterations that we can identify in the tissue or the blood. The most common ones that we think about are EGFR, ALK. Uh, we've now heard of KRAS. And again, there are seven or eight other genetic biomarkers. Now, your physician, if they're doing broad biomarker testing, next-generation sequencing, the panel that they order should contain all of the actional biomarkers. Now, once we have that testing back, in my opinion, both the plasma and the tissue next-generation sequencing, and I hope to hear a little bit about turnaround and, and sort of the role of the pathologist here in, in defining and, and sort of expediting this process, until we have that information, we cannot select the appropriate treatment for patients. And patients really need to understand and need to um, advocate for themselves, family members as well, to state, look, we need the right information for us to make the best decision for treatment here. Now, there are three kinds of systemic treatments. And the way I think about it is that a stage four cancer is a systemic disease, right? It started in the lung, in our example here, and learned to travel through the blood to the liver using a local therapy like surgery or radiation may be effective at treating a local spot of the disease and alleviating pain, um, but it will not change the prognosis of the disease. So for a stage four cancer, we really need to focus on systemic treatments or treatments that will go all over the body, not just treating cancer in one location, but treating disease everywhere in the body. And the three types of systemic treatments that we have uh, the first being chemotherapy, we, we call it conventional cytotoxic. Cytotoxic means that it's it damaging to cells in the body, cytotoxic chemotherapy. And the good thing about chemo is it's very good at killing cancer cells. The negative here, obviously, is that it can harm or affect normal cells. The second type of medicine is immunotherapy. And immunotherapy, interestingly, does not kill cancer cells at all. But what it does is it revs up our own immune system to better recognize and attack cancer. And then the third is the targeted therapies. And again, until you have your full biomarker results in, uh, testing back, where you have the PDL1 expression and the, uh, um, the molecular profile, the next generation sequencing results, we cannot appropriately select the best therapy. Now, a lot of patients, and I focus on EGFR and KRAS, and it's not wrong to get immunotherapy or targeted therapies. And a lot of people ask, what is the correct sequence? And you know, those are nuanced questions that I want you to discuss with your physician. But in general, if you have a mutation that has a matched approved therapy, you should be getting that matched approved therapy because it's going to work better. And also, it will likely have less side effects. You can imagine a targeted therapy is sort of a, a key in a lock or a scalpel as opposed to a chemotherapy, which is more of a broad therapeutic approach. Now, in the era of COVID, um, obviously care has been disrupted and sometimes it takes weeks or months uh, for these tests to come back. Sometimes the tissue can be across the street at a different institution and it might take us a month to get you know, our hands on that to do the correct testing. So it's important to understand sort of the limitations of these tests and have these discussions with your clinicians. So upfront when you meet them, is my tumor being tested for biomarkers? Because the earlier we get that done, the earlier we'll have the best possible therapy. Now, when you're seeing your doctor, uh, when you're seeing your team, it's important uh, that you realize that in the era of COVID and obviously the flu, we're sort of getting through that now and, and RSV, make sure that you're vaccinated if recommended by your uh, clinician and your team, and make sure that you're doing everything you can uh, to limit uh, exposure. So, you know, you still should live your life and do everything you normally do, but, you know, I would stay away from, you know, extremely large gatherings and obviously stay away from anyone uh, who may appear ill or, or, or look unwell uh, to you. And the other thing that you can do is, you know, wearing a mask may limit uh, your exposure uh, to some pathogens. The other thing on your new visit with your physician and your team is to come prepared with questions, and a lot of times this is overwhelming up front, Bring family members, bring friends. A couple of sets of ears are really helpful. 
And again, in the era of COVID, I know a lot of our visits are happening virtually. A lot of the platforms now, I know our platform has it, the ability to bring in other family members or other members into the meeting if, if you allow it. So have caregivers, have loved ones, anybody who will be there for you uh, to help digest the information could be extremely, extremely helpful. And then the last point that I want to bring up that I think is critical is a lot of our electronic medical record uh, systems have the ability for patients to read our notes. And, and I want you to know that this is an open dialogue. It's an open discussion. Uh, we, we want our patients to read the notes, uh, and we want you to ask questions if you have questions. And if there's something that you don't understand, then I'll bring that up at your next visit uh, with your clinician. And with that, I, I want to turn it back to uh, Dr. Mesner uh, for uh, continuation of the program. Thank you guys for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sabari. That was an outstanding presentation, stellar. And you really set the stage for today's program. So I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Allison Krishnan-Volken. And Dr. Krishnan-Volken is Medical Director of Molecular Diagnostic Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, Medical Director Warren G. Sanger Human Genomics Laboratory, Genetics Laboratory, Nebraska Medicine, Fellowship Director, Fellowship um, AACGME Molecular Genetic Pathology Fellows Program, Professor, Department of Pathology and Microbiology, University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Uh, Krishman Vogan will be addressing the role of the pathologist, the difference between genetics genomics and genetics, liquid biopsies and precision medicine and non-small cell lung cancer, reviewing your molecular testing with your healthcare team, and current research in genomics and non-small cell lung cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Krishman Boken. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I want to thank everyone who's joined the call today. Um, it makes me really happy that people are interested to learn both about um, lung cancer and also the role of the pathologist in genomic testing because, as Dr. Sabari said, it is an extremely important thing that we're doing now in the laboratories. So I am a pathologist. Um, I am specifically what is called a molecular pathologist. And what is pathology? I'm sure most people on the call have heard of pathology or of a pathologist. And when you think of pathology or a pathologist, um, most people initially think of autopsies, and that is what a pathologist does. And actually, we do do autopsies, but that's a very small part of what pathology is. Pathology actually um, can be separated into two main um, kind of parts. One is anatomic pathology, and one is clinical pathology. And anatomic pathology refers to a lot of what we'll be talking about today, where uh, if a patient goes to the hospital and has a surgery performed and has a mass taken out or has a, a piece of tissue taken out of the body for whatever um, diagnostic indication it might be, that specimen will then go to the pathology lab. And the pathology lab, the histology lab specifically, will process that specimen, basically dehydrate it, um, put it into wax, and cut what are called slides. And then these slides go through a series of staining and it's those series of staining that is given to the pathologist to actually look under the microscope and look at that tissue, look at the cellular makeup of that tissue, as was discussed, and render a diagnosis on that tissue. So in the case of, say, a lung cancer, that um, pathologist will take a look at that uh, tissue, look at the cells, and determine, A, if it is a malignancy or if it's a benign, if it's inflammatory or some sort of an infection and so forth. And then if it is a cancer, what kind of cancer it is. And so as Dr. Sabari um, has mentioned, there are a series of tests that we can do both in that, um, on that tissue from the histology lab and from another lab called the immunoperoxidase lab where we can do a various um, set of stains to try and A, tell if that's, for instance, a squamous cell carcinoma or um, an adenocarcinoma. And then, um, for instance, we can do stains such as pdl one as was mentioned, and that would be something called immunohistochemistry. And so anatomic pathology really is looking at the tissue under the microscope, deciding what kind of um, tumor you know, might be present if there's one there, and then rendering that diagnosis to help the oncologist um, treat the tissue or treat the tumor. 
And so the other part of pathology is something called clinical pathology. And so pathologists also oversee all of the laboratory, the clinical laboratories that perform testing on patient specimens. So for instance, um, if you've had a, a, a cell count done, if you've had your cholesterol checked, if you've had you know, anything done with, that requires a blood transfusion, all of those sorts of tests or products come out of pathology labs, and of course we need a very high bar of quality. Um, we're highly regulated in those labs to become clinical labs to test patient specimens. And so um, pathologists of different specializations oversee those clinical labs in the hospital to make sure that the testing is appropriate and being done correctly by the, the staff that actually do the testing. And so that's clinical pathology. And so molecular pathology, which is my area of specialization, really is kind of a bridge between the two. And what molecular pathology labs do in, in hospitals, and there are also reference labs or companies that do this, this testing, and some people on the call may have had their specimens sent to companies. Uh, we, I oversee the lab. I make sure the molecular lab here at my institution um, that we develop the panels using those, that next generation sequencing that was pre, um, previously discussed to develop panels for biomarker testing in various tumor types. And of course, lung cancer is one of our most more common tumor types that we currently test. And so I oversee the lab that develops the test to make sure that the tests are running properly. We, we do something called a validation study, which are quite large studies, um, making sure that the test is working appropriately. And then after we're done with that validation study, we will um, approve the test um, for um, testing on patient specimens. And so in our laboratory, we have various what are called next generation sequencers that run um, different panels of testing on various tumor types, including lung cancer. And so uh, a pathologist such as myself will, will oversee that testing and decide what kind of testing is important based on what oncologists such as Dr. Sabari would like for their um, patients and based on what's coming out in the literature, what drugs are being um, made available by the FDA and so forth that require specific biomarker testing. And so that's really um, the role of pathology um, in, in lung cancer and in um, patient testing and in helping to maintain um, great care for patients in the hospital. The next topic I'm supposed to speak about is um, the difference between genomics and genetics. And these do get used interchangeably oftentimes, but what the real difference is, and is when we talk about genomics, what we're really talking about is somewhat whole characterization of the genome. You know, we have three billion base pairs in our genome. We have anywhere between 25 and 30,000 genes. And so there's a lot to look at there when you use something like this next generation sequencing technology. But really, genomics takes both that information there in the genome and pairs it with, you know, environmental aspects, um, history of the patient, other what are we call comorbidities, other diseases that might be present. So it's really multifaceted characterization of the genome with regard to other aspects of, of, of um, what we look at in patients. Whereas genetics is really more localized, it's really focusing in on more specific genes, more specific panels that will really tell us how a, how a tumor might um, respond to a drug, uh, you know, how, what, what inherited disease a person might have because of something we find in a certain gene um, within the genome. And so genetics, I would say, is a little bit more localized. It's definitely a lot more easily usable in the clinical setting right now because we, we have more specific information we can, we can look at and we have more, uh, more drugs that we know will, you know, respond or causal response um, to a certain genetic signature. And so um, I think of genomics as more kind of, you know, larger, broader, um, and more in the research setting right now, although it's slowly being introduced into the clinical setting, whereas genetics is more on the clinical level right now with regard to these different panels that you might see coming um, through in your healthcare record on your specimen. And so again, we use next generation sequencing um, to really look at lots of different areas within the gene or within the genome, um, genes that we know are really associated with various cancers, both with cancer growth or poten um, potentially loss of regulation of cells so that the cells will grow. And so like in our lab, we have various panels. And with regard to lung cancer, we offer two panels. We offer a smaller panel of approximately 50 genes and then we offer a larger panel of approximately 300 plus genes. And so why would we do those different panels? Well, 
uh, and these are these are performed on tissue. So that tissue that I talked about that gets processed through the pathology laboratory, these both are, are in what's called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue. That's the kind of processing that we do. And uh, there, there are benefits to small panels, and there's benefits to large panels. And, and the smaller panel that we run is really beneficial because it has a really fast turnaround time. We can get results within three to five days once we get that specimen into the lab. We can do it on very, very tiny amounts of tissue or amounts of tumor. Um, these small biopsies that sometimes are, are taken out, they're very small. There's not a lot of tumor there, but we're actually able to get a lot of information on biomarkers from these small panels. So they're fast, uh, and, and the panel we offer is all for these FDA-approved drugs that are out there for various biomarkers in lung cancer, um, such as was mentioned, you know, KRAS, ALK, ROS, um, EGFR. And, and the, we continually have more and more biomarkers coming out, and thankfully a lot of those are still on the small panel, and we have been able to get a lot of information for our patients to be able to get on these um, various targeted therapies. The larger panels are, are beneficial, and I kind of think of those, sometimes a large panel is just ordered up front, which is fine, um, but they require a lot more tissue, so more um, when, when you say you take a mass out um, from a lung versus a very small biopsy, they require more tissue. Um, because obviously you're looking at a lot more areas, and um, they can take a lot longer to run, you know, one to two weeks at least, um, sometimes more, depending on how complicated the results are. And so, uh, so, so I think of those larger panels as being more beneficial, um, say that, say you've had the smaller panel done um, up front, as, as was mentioned before, either there weren't targets there on that smaller panel, or there was a target there that was treated, with a biomarker towards that target and maybe worked for a while, but then eventually, you know, that the tumor started growing again. And then these larger panels can be used to really identify new biomarkers that might be used for, say, a clinical trial, um, maybe, you know, an off-label um, drug if necessary, or maybe to identify a resistance um, to that drug to maybe help decide to use a different drug. And so that would be the benefit of, of a larger panel. And so there are pros and cons to both. Um, that's why we are offering both in our lab. Uh, and and these, these panels, not only is it the actual kind of sequencing that's done on these, this next generation sequencing, these large pieces of equipment that are very complicated, there's also a very complicated um, bioinformatics part of this, which means we take all that data, that sequencing data, and then it has to run through various computer softwares to help the pathologist um, identify the mutations or those biomarkers in order to be able to create a report for our oncologist who will be um, treating the tumor. So what I've talked about is mainly in tissues, but there is also the idea of a liquid biopsy, which I'm also supposed to um, uh, mention. And so liquid biopsies are also very um, useful in certain settings. As mentioned before, this is where you can draw blood. Um, so obviously it's much easier to collect blood than, say, tissue from inside of the body. And then there has to be special processing of that because th what we're looking for is what's called cell-free nucleic acid or cell-free DNA. So this is just kind of free DNA and RNA floating around in the blood from the tumor that, you can, be that can be used to identify various biomarkers, these mutations, these translocations between chromosomes um, to help with targeted therapy. The problem is sometimes, you know, these are like needles in a haystack. It has what's called a very short half-life, so you have to make sure you stabilize it properly, and you have to make sure that you prevent other cells that are normal from releasing their, their nucleic acid, their DNA, that can contaminate and make it harder to find the actual tumor um, markers that we're looking for. But as mentioned, these liquid biopsies um, can be very useful when, you know, you can't get more tissue. We didn't have enough tissue for the NGS panels that I mentioned. The other nice thing about it is, it is these liquid biopsies from the blood are kind of sampling all the different tumor locations within the body. So we're not just looking at one, say, say there's, a, there's a, quite a few metastases, um, a tissue biopsy will only get one of those metastases from one part of the body, but a, a liquid biopsy theoretically will be kind of assessing the whole landscape of the tumor throughout the body. So that's kind of another benefit. And sometimes we'll find things in the tissue that we don't find in the cell-free DNA. Sometimes we'll find things in the cell-free DNA that we don't find in the tissue. And so there is sometimes a discordance between those two, and that can make it difficult at times also. And so I think liquid biopsies can be very useful in certain settings, and down the road can really help tell you where a tumor is headed and, and what it's doing. 
So, of course, I talked a little bit about generating reports, and that's one of the items that I do as a molecular pathologist. I look at all the data. I look at all the testing that's been done and the, and the biomarkers that have been reported through the sequencing, and then I create a report that will go into the medical record for the oncologist to see and for the patients now to see, too. And so um, through the 21st Century Cures Act out of Congress, it's now been mandated that patients get their results right away. And so oftentimes you will get, for instance, my report before the actual oncologist sees the report, which, which is great, and, and patients are very knowledgeable now. Um, so we're trying to make these reports as easy to understand as possible, and I think the three things that really are important to look at in these reports are the, the biomarker that's identified, how it's classified, so we, we would try and classify these as, you know, pathogenic, meaning we think this is a true problematic marker that is causing the cancer to grow, and therefore it should act as a, as a target, versus maybe something that we're not quite sure. We call these variants of uncertain significance because we don't know what it means. We don't know if this is really causing the tumor or causing the problem or if it's just what we call a bystander. And then there are benign variants that we usually don't, don't result out. So it's important to see if it's pathogenic or like what we call likely pathogenic. Um, looking at if there are FDA-approved um, drugs out there for your tumor type or for the tumor type or in other tumor types is also important. So maybe it's approved in a different tumor type, but maybe it could be useful in, in the tumor type um, that's being tested. And then, of course, clinical trials. We try and list those that, that would be useful as well um, th that the patient could maybe potentially be enrolled in or, or they could look at for a clinical trial. And so those are all important things to look in the report. I would say if you get your report before your oncologist does, make sure you, you work with your oncologist um, and, and, and talk with them before you really it's, There's a lot of complicated information in there, and not everything on the web is true. So, so I would just caution that. And then my final um, topic, which I should address, and I'll address this somewhat quickly, is the current research in, in, in genomics and non-small cell lung cancer. And, and this is an area, of course, that's huge. Um, obviously, this is one of the more common cancer types, and there's lots of research going on. It seems like there's a new biomarker and a new drug out, you know, every few months in lung cancer in, in the journals. And trying to keep up with that is, is hard, but it's just it's a really great thing to see. And so I think most of the research, of course, is looking at these various biomarkers, um, specific mutations within genes. Um, more and more genes are coming out. More variants are coming out for which they're targeting. These can be very low, um, low, uh, like not occurring a lot in the population, low level, 1% of the population, and there are drugs out for these now. So that's why we have to look at so many different variants. But looking at what drugs are coming out or what's useful in these new biomarkers that we see. And then sometimes I talked a little bit about resistance. A, a, you may be treated with a drug for a certain biomarker, but then that tumor may become resistant. So what are those resistance factors and, and what new drugs can be developed to help again, start treating that tumor and trick that tumor and stop that tumor from growing to target that resistance marker. And that's, that's happened a lot, say, with EGFR and ALK, both. And then finally, I think one of the big areas that I feel is very important is environmental exposures and the development of lung cancer. And, and for instance, radon would be one of those. And that's a very hard thing to quantify. But, you know, how is environmental exposure, say, radon or other things, um, how does that interplay with genetic risk? with what we call epigenetics, which is chemical modifications of the DNA that can cause DNA to act in different ways and genes to act in different ways. And so I think it's really important that we look at large-scale genome programs, um, looking what makes people susceptible to lung cancer, how that interplays with the environment, and I think that's probably one big area where we'll be moving um, and, and are moving in the area of research in genomics and, and non-small cell lung cancer. And so I think that with that, I'll end my um, talk, but I'll be happy to answer any questions. And um, our next speaker is Anne Fish-Stegall, and she is our partner with the Longevity Foundation, and it's a pleasure to have um, Ms. Stegall on the call today. And she's my esteemed colleague, so I will now turn this program over to her. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It is um, absolutely a privilege to meet with you all today. I want to thank everyone who's in attendance and our speakers. Um, Longevity is a global lung cancer advocacy foundation, and we are extremely proud to partner with Cancer Care on these lung cancer uh, webinars. Longevity provides educational resources and a community for all of those affected by lung cancer. 
We do this in multiple ways through our virtual meetups, our patient and caregiver resource centers, as well as our gateways. All of these can be found on our website at longevity.org. In addition to these services, Longevity supports research through providing grants, working closely with our key thought leaders in lung cancer, and conducting patient-related research through programs such as FORCE. We lead webinars, Facebook live meetings, and sponsor patient and caregiver summits, and opportunities for patient and caregiver learning throughout the year. As an organization, we are dedicated to improving the lives of all those touched by lung cancer, and we are motivated by the idea that one day no one will die as a result of lung cancer. Longevity staff participates in multiple national organizations, including the National Lung Cancer Roundtable, ASCO, and throughout the country at other lung cancer conferences. We're dedicated to improving rates of lung cancer screening, screening through our Early Lung Cancer Center and also increasing awareness and accessibility to biomarker testing through our multiple precision medicine initiatives. Please visit our website to learn more about how we at Longevity can help you with your journey of lung cancer. We want you to always know that you are not alone, and we are here um, to help you in multiple ways if you just reach out. Thank you so much, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, um, uh, Ms. And to Stiegel, um, it was a wonderful presentation and a wonderful resource. We're delighted and honored to be partnering with Longevity Foundation. It's a wonderful resource for all of you on the call. So please do take advantage of all the resources of the Longevity Foundation. And our next speaker is Christine Morell. And Ms. Morell is an oncology social worker, and she's lung cancer manager and clinical supervisor of Cancer Care, and she is going to discuss with you Cancer Care's free programs and services and give you the phone number for our Hope Line and website as well. My pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Morell. Thank you, Dr. Mester, and thank you all for taking the time to be with us today on such important topics. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide free professional support services, and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, online support groups, education programs, community programs, publications, and potential financial and copayment assistance for medications. To add just a little more information about our services, our resource navigation services involve short-term, strength-based approach to finding additional support and resources, either emotional or financial, for people with cancer or their caregivers. Our national online support groups take place using password-protected messaging boards and are led by oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time and you can register on our website to join an online support group that's specific to you. We have support groups that are for lung cancer patients and lung cancer caregivers, as well as new groups for Spanish-speaking patients and LGBTQ plus young adult patients. We also have on Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, a wide range of reading material and educational support organized by cancer type and topic. This includes recorded education workshops like this one, publications, Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, community programs like our Ways to Wellness series and series about commonly asked questions with lung cancer, which may be of particular interest to this group. People can register for many of our programs online or through our Hopeline. As others have mentioned on this call, navigating lung cancer diagnosis is not something that you have to go through alone as a patient or a caregiver. By calling the Hopeline for Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or calling Longevity's Helpline at 844-360-5864 if you live in the U.S. Individuals have access to Cancer Care's oncology social workers who can help connect you with support. 
Building a community and reaching out for help isn't always easy, but it's important to both maintain your support system and coping strategies when dealing with lung cancer diagnosis. Thank you very much for your time today and your interest in our topic. I'm going to turn this back to Dr. Mester. Thank you so, so much, Ms. Morell. That was a wonderful presentation, and actually there's a wonderful resources for our participants to take advantage of, both Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care as well. And now we're going to move right on to the q and I'm going to ask Regina to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay. Um, um, I have a question, a question um, from one of our participants, um, and this will be for Dr. Um, Christian Vulcan. Is there an update on the clinical trial for the HER2 biomarker as the primary treatment for HER2 and adenocarcinoma as opposed to standard of care chemotherapy and immunotherapy? Addition to um, question, um, or you go first. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I probably will defer to Dr. Sabari on that one, um, but I, I, it is a very important biomarker uh, that we do look at for um, potential uh, targeted therapy. But I'll let Dr. Sabari maybe address that just since it's a little bit more clinically relevant. Let me defer to you first on the difference between an, a mutation, the exon 20 insertion mutation, amplification, and overexpression, and then I'll go into some of the trials. Yep, that, yep. So there is, so when, and, and this is not just with HER2 or what we um, call ERB2, um, which is the gene. Uh, this is with lots of genes, all the genes. Um, sometimes you have to, you, or you do have to differentiate between something, a mutation, which is a change in the genetic code of the DNA sequence. And so there are HER2 um, mutations. And then there's amplification, which means that gene, that DNA that makes up that gene, for whatever reason, there are way more, normally you should have two copies, but when it's amplified, you will have lots of copies, you know, 17 copies, 30 copies, 40 copies. So that's amplification. And what the idea is, the more amplified that gene is, and the more of that gene that, that makes that protein, that protein's being expressed on the cell, and therefore may be a better target for HER2 inhibitors, because you have so much of that protein that's coded by that gene there on the cell membrane. Then there's also overexpression. That refers to RNA. Now, RNA is the nucleic acid that kind of comes off the DNA through the cell. And that RNA is really the message that then helps create the protein. And so overexpression refers to there's a lot of RNA being produced off the HER2 gene, the DNA. So you, don't, you have a normal amount of DNA, but whatever's happening is causing that DNA to be what's called transcribed into lots of RNA, and that's referred to overexpression, and theoretically that would also give you more protein at the cell surface. So there are different ways you can have changes in a, in a gene, and those would be three of the main ways. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, and, and I couldn't, you know, stress that, couldn't stress that further. It's really important to understand what abnormality you have in your cancer. You know, we'll talk about HER2 in a moment, but whatever mutation you have, knowing what it is, and then thinking about what are options both standard of care and then potentially some clinical trials. So for HER2 exon 20 insertion mutation, and I know it sounds like a mouthful, but you know a lot, a lot of us spent a lot of years studying these different mutations, but for that specific mutation, we've made strides in uh, treatment. So there is a medicine and HER2. It's a HER2-directed antibody drug conjugate that's FDA-approved in the second line, meaning after chemo or chemo and immunotherapy. There is an ongoing trial looking at full approval, meaning so a clinical trial in the frontline study with randomization of NHER2 versus chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And just to throw out some numbers, half of people who get that medicine have a response to treatment, their tumor regresses, and have durable response. More recently, we've seen targeted therapies, which are pills, not chemotherapy or, or antibody drug conjugates, that's the chemo attached to a, a, an antibody, but we actually have true pills, targeted therapies, where we're seeing response rates in the 70 and even 80% range. So I'll highlight two of them. There's one from Bollinger Ingelheim, BI181, and that's an ongoing trial. We saw data presented last summer. Uh, we're enrolling patients. We have that open. It's open across the country and actually globally. Uh, really excited about the study. And there's another asset from a company called Bayer, uh, which is also a medicine that we've seen significant activity in the HER2 exon 20. 
Where we unfortunately have not seen as much activity is in the HER2 overexpression and the HER2 amplification, but many, many studies are, are forthcoming. Excellent, thank you. And um, a question um, for Dr. Um, Savari. Should a patient accept immunotherapy before biomarker testing um, is completed? That's an, that's an excellent question. It's one of my favorite questions, and the answer is no, you should not. Uh, there is no reason to get immunotherapy prior to uh, having your molecular testing results back. And the reason being is, if you have a pdl one expression that's 100, but you also have an EGFR mutation or a HER2 exon 20 mutation, targeted therapies will actually work better than immunotherapy. And more importantly, um, you may prevent yourself from having any toxicity from immunotherapy. So you know, even, in, even though immunotherapy is a really successful type of medicine for many patients, it doesn't usually work as well in people who have these driver mutations that may be more actionable with targeted therapy, and we unfortunately see a high rate of toxicity or side effects where immune system gets overactive when we then go to give the correct targeted therapy type medicines after immunotherapy uh, is given. So really should wait for that result back and then have a discussion with your doctor. If you're very symptomatic or there's a large burden of disease, it's okay to start chemotherapy while you're waiting for that result, but I would recommend against starting immunotherapy until you have your full molecular biomarker testing panel back. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a question um, for Ms. Morrell um, and also for Ms. Manfish Stegall. Um, um, any programs help financially cost for living for patients with um, non-small cell lung cancer? So I can start. Um, so there are definitely different programs out there that help with financial assistance. Um, a lot of those things are based on geography, where someone lives, um, as well as income-based things. So it's certainly something that someone can reach out to us here at Cancer Care or through the Longevity helpline, um, which would get you in contact with our social workers at Cancer Care to be able to have a more individual assessment done. Um, and that can be done by the person with cancer themselves as well as from their caregiver. Um, so that way we can be able to try and find specific resources for them. Excellent. Thank you so yep. much. And I would just add to that that um, we do, we, we at Longevity um, partner with Cancer Care, um, like she said, in terms of our helpline. But I would also encourage anyone who, has, who is having financial issues to reach out to folks in their own institutions. Um, there are usually financial counselors. There are social workers available um, that may be able to point you in a direction for more local assistance. Um, and most cancer centers do have someone um, dedicated to help patients in that area. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, um, so that, that's an important question. I actually am going to ask um, our speakers now to um, offer takeaways to our participants. I'm going to start with Dr. Sabari, then Dr. Krishman Wilkin, then Dr. Fish, then Ms. And then Ms. Burrell. So, Dr. Sabari, do you want to go first? Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I think the biggest takeaway that I would say is that you're never alone. Uh, there are always resources and there's always help in your team, your medical team, your family members, your caregivers. And remember, lung cancer is not one disease, it's many diseases. And you know, understanding that biomarkers are critical in helping guide the correct therapy. Uh, and to the question that was answered or asked earlier, you know, should I ever get a therapy without having my biomarker testing back? It is so critical to have all that information back before making the best treatment for you. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, Dr. Um, Krishman Vulcan? Uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, this, this testing is, is, in my opinion, somewhat of a miracle. It's amazing what um, people have come up with with regard to technology to be able to do what we're doing with regard to testing and, and the drugs that have come out of all of the research, and, and it's really amazing. I think an important um, thing to remember is 
you know, cancer is constantly changing, and I think it's very important to get that initial panel done, as was um, recommended by Dr. Sabari. Um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, through various therapies um, down the road, it's possible that that tumor can change a little bit and that it might, be, might warrant another test. And while we still don't know totally if these will be supported by insurance companies, I think an important conversation to have with your oncologist um, as you go through your series of treatments or as a patient goes through their series of treatments, you know, should I have another test? Should I have a, a liquid biopsy done now? Um, I think more than one test through certain, uh, you know, courses of therapy could be important in order to further direct therapy. And that's, it's, not, it's not necessarily always a one-time test, in my opinion, especially as we learn more throughout the years. So just keep that in mind, I think. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Ms. Uh, Fischstegel? Hi. I agree um, with Dr. Zamara that we definitely want you to know that you are not alone. There is a large community out there for lung cancer patients. Uh, with lots and lots of resources, and um, it's simply a matter of a phone call or a reach out on the internet, whatever's easiest for you, and we will do our best to help you get connected to whatever resources that you need. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, Ms. Morell? I agree with what everyone else has said as well. And I just want to add that if you do feel that you need additional information about biomarkers, your diagnosis, or your treatment, there's great information that's easy to understand that's accessible to you through the Cancer Care website. And you can also speak with your treatment team to make sure that you're getting your individual questions answered. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. Um, now, we did not get to everyone's questions, so I want to comment on that. Um, for those of you who asked a question, those of you who have a question in queue, and for those of you who have a question that you're mulling over and thinking about, please, as our speakers have said, go back to treating healthcare team. They know you the best. And your team consists um, has been pointed out not only of your medical oncologist or your pathologist, but also consists of a whole team of others, um, oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial navigators, patient navigators. It's a whole team of people who can help. So it is a very good idea to start with your healthcare team when you have a question. That's very important to do. Also, as has been pointed out, you are not alone. You have your healthcare team. You have both Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care to contact. Um, we will be sending you, of course, a Survey Monkey um, at the um, in a couple of days. And in that Survey Monkey, you'll be receiving um, not only an evaluation of the a program for you to evaluate it, but also you'll be receiving um, all the resources that were mentioned during the program, and then some additional ones that we may not have mentioned during the program that would be of help to you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.